The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Micah? I don't think I've ever said that. (laughs) I've never preached one message from Micah. If you have problems finding it, because like me, you maybe don't go there very often, it's in the Old Testament. On page 1,304 in my Bible, <laughs> and it's right after the book of Jonah. I told you a couple uh, Sundays ago, or maybe even last Sunday, that we're taking uh, the Sundays around Christmas to obviously fix our heart and mind on the birth of Christ and to remind ourselves of what Christmas is really about. As I said last week, the Christmas story does not begin in Luke 2. The Christmas story does not begin with the birth of Jesus Christ. The Christmas story begins in the Old Testament. Hundreds, even thousands of years before the arrival of Christ on earth, there is prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament about the arrival of the Messiah, promised coming Savior. We looked at one of those prophecies last week in Isaiah chapter 7. We had a marvelous time looking at that very famous Prophecy, Isaiah 7, 14. This morning we want to turn our attention to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. You know it well. Let me read it again just to familiarize yourself with this single verse that reminds us of the birth of Christ. Micah 5, verse 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That verse is quoted in Matthew chapter 2. When Herod finds out that there is the birth of a king, a Messiah, he asks the question, where is he to be born? And in answer to that question of Herod, the chief priests and the scribes of that day answered his question by quoting this verse. It's a monumental prophecy about the birth of Jesus Christ. Just one verse. And yet it is, con- it is packed with glorious truths about the birth of Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem as we might have expected in this big, glorious, religious city of Jerusalem, but in a small, nondescript, plain village of Bethlehem. This verse, in its context, is meant to give the people of that day hope and comfort. And let me tell you, they needed some hope and comfort. They, they needed something to encourage their hearts in the midst of 8th century B.C. Israel. It was a, a time of despair. It was a time of hopelessness. And this morning, what I want to do for a little bit, I, I have a very long introduction and a very short message. I want to take you back to 725 B.C. I want to transport you this morning back to 8th century B.C. Judah. I want you to feel what it would have been like to be a Jew at that time. I want you to sense a little bit of the despair and the hopelessness of that day, and I want to give you a glimmer of hope that they 
would have had as they looked forward to a coming Messiah. So go with me to the first verse of this book, Micah chapter 1, verse 1. Let me just introduce this to you, and then we're going to dive into a number of these chapters that lead up to this marvelous prophecy. Micah 1, verse 1, tells us that Micah was born in the city of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. We meet a man by the name of Micah who was born in Moresheth, a city about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. He's not of the aristocracy. He's not of the politically elite. He's living in a little village. And God summons this common man to bring a message of judgment and to bring a message of hope to the people living in that day. Times were bad in Micah's day. Notice what verse 1 says again. It says that he was ministering in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Here's Micah ministering in the southern kingdom. Remember, northern kingdom, ten tribes, southern kingdom, two tribes. He's a prophet to the southern kingdom, Judah. The year is 735 to 710 B.C. He's ministering in the days around when the northern ten tribes are taken captive and brought to Assyria in judgment for their wickedness. Judah lasts a little bit longer. He is a prophet to the southern kingdom. And he's ministering during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. If you know anything about Old Testament history, you know that two of those three were good kings of Israel or Judah. Jotham, Ahaz's father, was a good king. And Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, was a good king, but not Ahaz. If you were here last week, you met him. It's the same Ahaz as in Isaiah 7, 14, when God said to the king, ask for a sign and I will grant you one. And Ahaz says, oh, no thanks, I would never dare to do that. It's the same guy. Wicked, idolatrous, adulterous King Ahaz. Listen to 2 Kings chapter 16. Describe him. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God and his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. This was a wicked man. He visited the high places where the people would offer sacrifices to the false gods. He offered his own son as a burnt offering, living to the god Molech. Wicked, wicked king, and the people were no better. Like priest, like people, like shepherd, like sheep. He he was an idolatrous, wicked king who encouraged his people to do the same thing, and they treated God as if he was just another God in their panoply of gods, and they treated each other with moral corruption and social injustice. How would you like to be a prophet to those people? That's who Micah was called to preach to. And he had a message. It was a message of judgment and a message of hope, 
God raised Micah up to, to proclaim to these people that they're sinners and they're violating God's laws contained in the Mosaic legislation. And if they don't repent, God's going to visit them with judgment. In a series of three oracles throughout this book, Micah gives this message. Three cycles, three oracles. The first one in chapters 1 and 2, the second one in chapters 3 through 5, the third one in chapters 6 and 7. And in each one of these cycles, he does three things. Number one, he announces their sin and confronts them in their sin. Number two, he says, you're going to be judged because of your rebellion against the one true and living God. And the third thing he says is, but there's going to be hope because God is your covenant God and he'll be faithful to his promises to you. By the way, if you want to know the theme of almost every prophet in the Old Testament, it's that. Right there. Judgment and restoration. Confrontation and comfort. That's the message of the prophets. And so this morning, as I said, I want to take you back. And I want you to sense what it would have been like to live at this time. So go back to chapter 1. You should be there. I want to take you through cycle number 1. Cycle number 1, I want you to notice three, three things. Sin, judgment, and hope. Look at Micah 1, verse 2. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth, those places where they would go and worship and exalt their false gods. Verse 4. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down on a steep place. All, <clears throat> all this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley and will lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be smashed. All of her earnings will be burned with fire and all of her images I will make desolate. For she collected them from a harlot's earnings. He confronts them in their sin. He says, you're worshiping false gods. You need to repent, and if you don't, God will visit you in judgment. Look over to chapter 2. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So chapter 1 deals with the people's sin against God. Now in chapter 2, he deals with the people's sin against one another. So chapter 2 in verse 1, he says, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in their power of their hands. In other words, you people are laying on your beds, and when you can't sleep at night, you are devising schemes, ways to actually fulfill your lustful, sinful desires. And when you wake up in the morning, you actually go do those things. Verse 2, they covet fields and then seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man of his inheritance. Social injustice. The rich robbing the poor. The elite oppressing the underprivileged. Notice what God does, Micah chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, that I am planning against this family a calamity, 
from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. On that day, they will take up against you a taunt and utter a bitter lamentation and say, we are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To the apostate, he apportions our fields. Therefore, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. In other words, listen, Judah. If you don't repent, I'm going to bring a people against you. I'm going to use the Babylonians as an instrument of my judgment against you, and they're going to come and they're going to raise your cities, and they're going to take you captive. And there will be, verse 5 says, no one left stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. You're all going to be taken captive. Warnings of judgment. It's corrupt. Wicked people, if you are of the remnant in that day, if you're a believing Jew in that day, it looks pretty hopeless. Well, it gets worse. Look at verse 6. Not only were they wickedly treating one another and worshiping false gods, they had false prophets in their midst who were encouraging them to do that. Verse 6, do not speak out, so they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. Is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? Recently, my people have arisen as an enemy. You strip, he's speaking to the false prophets here, you strip the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passers-by, from those returned from war. The women of my people you evict each one from her pleasant home, from her children. You take my splendor forever. Arise and go, for there is no place of rest because of the uncleanness that brings on destruction, a painful destruction. If a man walking with wind after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be spokesman to this people. He's confronting the false prophets in Israel. You strip off the robe of people, you take advantage of people. You oppress people. And by the way, if, if someone is willing to pay you enough money, you're willing to say whatever needs to be said to make people feel good. You're willing to be a, a preacher of the prosperity message. Prosperity gospel has been around for thousands of years. Benny Hinn was not the first prosperity preacher. The people wanted their ears tickled. This is the character of the people in Micah's day. Wicked people, wicked rulers, false prophets. And you would think after that, after such a vivid denunciation of the sins of Israel, there would be a prophecy about just impending judgment, completely destroying them. But that's not the case. There's a glimmer of hope. There's a ray of hope in the midst of all of this. And you can see it towards the end of chapter 2, verse 12. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, I will assemble all of you, Jacob, and I will surely gather the remnant of Israel, and I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. Ah, there's a glimmer of hope. Despite the wickedness, despite the depravity, despite God's impending judgment upon these people, God will restore them. I'll be your shepherd. Like a flock in the midst of its pasture, they will be noisy with men. God's going to pull his people back. This is a promise of restoration. He's going to redeem his people. He's going to one day bring them back to himself, and they'll be his sheep in his sheepfold. That day, he says, is coming. 
Verse 13, the breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them and the Lord at their head. There's coming someone, a breaker, someone who will open and clear the way for his sheep, someone who break down every obstacle in the way of his people. There's coming somebody, a deliverer, someone who will act as their breaker, the one who clears the way, who leads them, who shepherds them. And it says in verse 13, he's going to be their king. Who is he? Who's this breaker? Who's this king who will go before them? Who is this one who will be their their head? Who is the one who will break people forth from their enemy cities and release them and restore them? Who is it? Who's going to bring this hope? We'll come back to it. That's cycle number one. Cycle number two starts in chapter three. It's another cycle of Doom that is punctuated with a glimmer of hope. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. This is God's judgment on the leaders again. You've already seen a little bit of it in chapter 2, his judgment against the false prophets. All of chapter 3 is all about his judgment upon the nation's leaders. Micah 3 verse 1, and I said, Here now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil? Is that not the very antithesis of what leaders should do? Leaders of God's people ought to hate what is evil and love what is good. All of us should do that. And yet, particularly the leaders of God's people, those who are called to shepherd God's people, they are to be lovers of good and haters of evil. And these people were doing the exact opposite. They hated what is good. They loved what is evil. Keep reading in verse 2, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and strip off their skin from them, who break their bones and chop them up as for the pot and as meat in a kettle. What a graphic imagery. It's a hunting analogy. I'm not a big hunter. I've gone hunting a few times. This is what you do when you bag a deer. You gut it. You hang it up. You skin it. And then you start chopping it in pieces. This is what the leaders of Israel were doing to their people. And God says to them because of this in verse 4, Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. There's coming a day when they're going to be judged and the Babylonians are on their way. They're they're out there. They're 120 years out still, but they're coming. And when they come, they're going to come to a point where the leaders cry out to the Lord and they'll want him to help. And it says he will not answer them. It will be too late. Judgment on the rulers of the nation. Keep reading. Here's another judgment on the false prophets. Look at verse 5 of Micah chapter 3. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray when they have something to bite with their teeth. They cry peace, but against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. These prophets are supposed to be God's mouthpiece to his people, and instead they're leading them astray. They're in it for themselves as long as they've got something to bite with their teeth, meaning as long as they've got food in their, in their midst, as long as they're being paid, oh, we'll give you a great message. But you stop paying us, 
Then they go to war against their own people. Wicked prophets. Verse 6. What's going to happen to these false prophets? Therefore, it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will, put, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. There's coming a day, God says, when you false prophets are going to have the lights turned out on you. You're not doing what God has called you to do. You are preaching a false message. You are not representing God to the people. You are leading them astray. And so there's going to come a day when God will judge you and discipline you and punish you. And judgment will come unexpectedly. And it did in the people of the Babylonians when they took them exile in 586 B.C. Add to that. All of the leaders of the house of Judah are condemned here at the end of chapter 3. Look at verse 9. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent justice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. What a horrible indictment. They abhor justice. They love violence. They preach for a price. They're in it for the money. These leaders of Israel are. So what's going to happen? Look at verse 12. Very important verse. I want you to notice this. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. Because of your wickedness, because of your failure to lead the people correctly, leaders of Judah, I will come, God says, and I'm going to plow your city, Jerusalem, under. I'm going to devastate your city. It's going to become a heap of ruins because of your unwillingness to repent of your sin and your unwillingness to submit to me as the God of your people. It's exactly what happened 120 years later when the Babylonians rolled into Judah. Corrupt, wicked, facing God's judgment. This is a message of doom. And again, for a moment, just put yourself as a believing Jew, as part of the remnant, put yourself in this situation. Is there any hope? Will there be any deliverance? In the midst of all this corruption and depravity and perversion and moral wretchedness from the top to the bottom, do we have any hope? Chapter 4 says, yes, all hope is not lost. Chapter 4 is an entire chapter about God's comfort to his people and the hope that he will give them in the midst of this moral depravity. So look with me at chapter 4. Here's the hope in the midst of the doom, verse 1 of chapter 4. Remember I said chapter 3, verse 12 is an important verse, the last verse of chapter 3? says Jerusalem's going to become a heap of ruins. But notice the contrast, starting in chapter 4. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Jerusalem, 
will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised up above the hills. This, this very city that was plowed under, this very city that became a heap of ruins because of God's judgment is going to one day be raised up, established as the chief of the mountains, raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it, and nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law Even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Oh, there's coming a day when Jerusalem's going to be restored. And the word of God is going to be preached from there in a way it was never preached before. The mountain will be established, the people will be established, and the nations will swarm and flock to Jerusalem to hear the word of the Lord. That day's coming, Micah says. Verse 3, and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. There's coming a king who will render perfect justice. Just for one moment, imagine that. As we watch impeachment proceedings played out on the news channels, there's coming a king, Micah says, who will render perfect justice in every situation. Verse 3 as well says, Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, and ever again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. There's coming a day, Micah says, when you can turn your swords into plows. You can turn your implements of warfare into agricultural tools because there will be no more war and you're not going to need those weapons anymore. Because, verse 4 says, you'll be able to dwell in safety in the mouth of the Lord of houses spoken and no one will make them afraid. There's hope. there's, There's a glimmer of hope in the midst of all of this depravity and all of this wickedness. Keep reading. The hope goes on. Verse 5, though all the peoples walk, walk each in his name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In other words, there's coming a day when Israel will be spiritually sensitive to God. When this wickedness that has so much characterized them will one day be characterized by a love for the Lord and a willingness to walk in his name. Verse 6 says, In that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. There's coming a day when God will regather his people. These wicked people who were scattered by the Babylonians, there's going to be a day when God will bring them back to the land where they've been scattered out of and brought back to the Lord. Verse 7 says, And I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. God will strengthen them because the Lord will reign over them and sustain them. He will be their God, and so they will be his people. Because of that, verse 8 says, As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Israel. There's one day coming a kingdom which will be forever. Do you see the hope? Do you sense the hope in the midst of this depravity and wickedness? Verse 9 
Now why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. Oh, they, they haven't yet arrived at this hope because they have to be judged first. They're not repentant. They won't turn from their sin. God will judge them. Babylon will come and will take them captive and will deliver them out of the land. But verse 10 says, there the Lord will redeem you. From the hand of your enemies. So there's still some hope here. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted and let her eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord and they do not understand his purpose. For he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron and your hooves I will make bronze that you may pulverize many people. Israel, you're going to win battles against your enemies. And the Lord will fight for you. And God will deliver you. What's the point of all that? There's still hope. In the midst of this moral perversity and this incredible spiritual harlotry, there is still a glimmer of hope. Well, that brings us to chapter 5, verse 1. The immediate context of our prophecy that we're looking at Despite the, back, the fact that one day that God would deliver them, despite this hope that they, they have, despite all of that, they, they still have to face judgment for their sin. They're still unrepentant. And so Micah 5 verse 1 tells us that this is going to happen. This judgment will come upon them. Look at chapter 5 verse 1. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. He's speaking to Jerusalem. He calls Jerusalem the daughter of troops because their armies will assemble against their enemies and their enemies will assemble against them in Jerusalem. Now muster yourselves in troops, O daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. The Babylonians are coming. And they will judge you. And this is exactly what happened. Listen to 2 Kings chapter 24, and it describes the fulfillment of this prophecy. Listen. 2 Kings 24 verse 10, At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. Exactly what verse 1 of Micah 5 says. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign, and he carried out all there from there the vessels of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord has said. Then he, Nebuchadnezzar, led away into exile. All Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest people in the land. It happened exactly how Micah said it would. In verse 1, the Babylonians come and they lay siege against the city. Now notice the last phrase of verse 1, with a rod 
they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. What is this? He doesn't tell us specifically who the king is at this time, but he says that with a rod, they are going to smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. And to smite someone on the cheek means to humiliate them, to insult them. It means to treat someone shamefully, to to actually embarrass them. With a rod, they will do that to the king of Israel. And do you know that's exactly what happened? 2 Kings 25 tells us what they did to Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, the final king in the Davidic line. Listen. Now in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and his army against Jerusalem camped against it and built a siege wall around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city. And they went by the way of Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him, and they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon, and he passed sentence on him, and they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Jerusalem. They utterly shamed and humiliated King Zedekiah, exactly how Micah predicted You're a Jew living in that day. And the question is, is that it? Is that how it ends? Maybe there isn't any hope. The last king in the line of David is gone. Is that how it ends? Micah 5, verse 2. But, is that not the best word in the Bible? But, as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth. For me to be ruler in Israel, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Oh, this is glorious. The last king in Judah, the last king in the line of David is described as, verse 1, being humiliated, being insulted. With a rod, he was smote on the cheek. But, but, There's another king coming. There's one who is in complete contrast to the smitten, humiliated king of verse 1. There's coming a great ruler who will come to shepherd God's people. 
and he's described in verse 2. That's the introduction. Now the sermon. Who is this? It's Christ. It's the breaker. It's the king. It's the one who would come and bring the hope that the people desperately longed for. So let me give you three things this prophecy teaches us about Christ. Three marvelous truths about Christ that we need to remember at Christmas. Number one, the first thing we learn about him is the birthplace of the coming Messiah. The birthplace of the coming Messiah. Notice verse 2, he says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth one for me. Who is this king who will bring the hope? Who is this king who stands in complete contrast to the smitten last king of the Judaic dynasty in verse 1? It's Christ, the one who's born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Why does he add Ephrathah? Because there were two Bethlehems, one in the north in Galilee. And so to be absolutely certain that no one would miss it, so there, there would be no confusion, so that no one would come away being confused about which Bethlehem we're talking about here, it's Bethlehem Ephrathah, the city five miles from Jerusalem, the city known as the House of Bread, which is a wonderful name for the bread of life to come from. It's David's city. We just read it in Luke chapter 2. The city of David. It's where David was born. It's the same town that David was born and raised in. There's another coming king who's the greater David. There's another king who was unlike all those previous kings and especially like the last king of Judah. There's another David coming, a greater David who will be the one who will establish Davidic line. By the way, have you ever thought about the fact that Joseph and Mary didn't live in Bethlehem? Think about this. You've got a prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They didn't live there. They lived in Nazareth, 70 miles away. So, God in His infinite wisdom does what? He works through the governor of the day, Quirinius, who was governor of Syria, who issued a census which God sovereignly orchestrated to bring Joseph and Mary down to Bethlehem in fulfillment of this prophecy. I love this. God is sovereignly orchestrating all of this. His fingerprints are all over this incredible story because if it doesn't happen in Bethlehem, this prophecy is not fulfilled. And if this prophecy is not fulfilled, the Word of God is not true. So the fingerprints of God's sovereignty are all over this as He sovereignly works through Caesar Augustus and orchestrates the very events that would ensure that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And not only did He ensure it, He ensured their safety. Two young people traveling 70 miles in mountainous terrain with robbers on the way and Mary on the verge of delivering? 
they make the grueling journey and Christ is born in Bethlehem. I love that. There's something interesting about this that I find very intriguing. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. He was born in this small, nondescript, unimpressive, insignificant little village. In fact, notice the phrase in verse 2 of Micah 5, that it was too little to be among the clans of Judah. Hardly anyone was aware of Bethlehem. In fact, I want to give you an assignment this morning. Today, I want you to go to Joshua 15 after church, and I want you to go to Nehemiah 11. Joshua 15 and Nehemiah 11, and read all the cities of Judah listed there. Just read it. And nowhere is Bethlehem mentioned. Small, insignificant, inconsequential, unimportant, a virtually irrelevant town. And the Messiah is born there. That tells us something about Christ. It tells us about His humility. It tells us about His humanity, that He had to be born in Bethlehem. The fact that He was born there signifies His humanity, and it signifies His humility. He came to this earth not with raucous celebrations, not showing up in the greatest day of His uh, city of His day, but showing up in this village that hardly anyone was aware of. Our Savior stepped out of heaven and entered our world as a man with a little fanfare. Just for a moment, think about that. The King of the world, the Savior, the one who would bring the hope that is promised here in the book of Micah, enters our world in the most insignificant ways. Philippians 2 says, he, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, he was found in appearance as a man and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His birth was marked by humility, his life was marked by humility, his death was marked by humility on a cross. That's what Christmas is about. The arrival of the humble God-man. There's a second thing we learn about Christ here. It's the reign of the coming Messiah. Not only do we learn about His birthplace, we learn about His, his reign, the reign of the coming Messiah. Look again at verse 2. It says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. He's the king. He's the one who, who will restore Israel back to what they need to be to, to be God's people. He's the one who will rescue them. He's the one who will help them. He's the one who will give them new hearts. He's the one who will turn away them from their judgment and from their sin. And he is the one who will bring them the hope that they're longing for because he will rule and he will reign with all power and all authority. 
Keep reading. Look at the next couple of verses in Micah chapter 5. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor and has borne a child, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. Speaking of his reign, by the way, this hasn't happened yet. This is what he came to do the first time. And he was rejected, and he was killed, and he was crucified, and he was murdered by the very people he came to do this for. But that doesn't nullify the promise. He's coming again. At the second coming, he's going to do this. In fact, go back to chapter 4. Does this make chapter 4 make a little bit more sense now? Chapter 4, remember what we said in verses 1 to 3, it says, At that time it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it, and nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. That's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Notice verse 7, chapter 4. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. That's the hope of Israel, and that's our hope. The king has come, Israel's king. He's also our king. And one day in the millennial kingdom, he will fulfill these promises for his people. Tremendous. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas the arrival of the king. One other lesson we learn, it's number three, it's the eternality of the coming Messiah. The eternality of the coming Messiah. Look again at verse 2 of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Now look at the last phrase of verse 2. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Who's this king? Who is the one who will arrive in Bethlehem to rescue his people? It's the one who has existed from eternity. And the only one that can be said of is God. God steps into time in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the one who has always existed from eternity past. Beloved, this is Christmas, the arrival of God incarnate. And it's, 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 it's right here in the text. There's a mention of his birth implied in the fact that he will come from Bethlehem. And there's a mention of his deity in the verse 2. His days are from eternity. There's a hint at the fact that he's the God-man here in Micah 5 verse 2. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. And it's all Right here in this one verse, 2,700 years ago, Micah said this is what would happen, and it's exactly what happened. So, what are you remembering this Christmas when you 
sip your eggnog on Wednesday? Will you remember this? When you open your presents and have your Christmas parties, will you remember this? It's about Christ, the one who arrived in Bethlehem in exact fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. Let's pray. Lord God, these truths are just phenomenal. So wonderful for us to try to wrap our minds around the fact that the God of eternity, in direct fulfillment of this specific prophecy, entered our world 2,000 years ago. And he came to rescue his people. And he came to rescue us. And he did so by dying on a cross. He, he didn't come to save us who thought we could get ourselves to God. He came to rescue us who knew we had no way of getting ourselves to God. And he laid down his life. And he took the full judgment and wrath that our sin deserved as he hung on that tree. And so, Lord, as we remember these things and as we celebrate these things and as we ponder this this week, may our hearts respond with wonder and worship and praise that the baby who was born in Bethlehem is our king, the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are from long ago. Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.